This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. I am joined today by an amazing musician who is half of the Brooklyn-based alt-rock band They Might Be Giants. He is a singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and a goodwill ambassador for the accordion. We discussed the impact his parents' record collection had on him, the way his band crossed over into children's music, and he shares info about their newest album called Book. Stay tuned for my talk with musical swell, John Linnell. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. John, how are you? I'm well, Pat. How are you? I understand we both have had our booster shots. And I'm sitting on a booster seat, so <laughs> I'm ready for a big boy conversation. Very good. I'm a big fan of your music. If I sound silly, it's just because there's so much recall of road trips, listening to the music, uh, both the mature adult stuff and the kid albums, which I want to talk about because that was sort of a lifesaver for me All right, <laughs> as a dad driving and wanting something that had a musicality to it, but was fun for the kids to sing. At some point in the process of doing that stuff, it occurred to us that kids like to listen to the same stuff over and over again. And it required some finesse to make something that adults could actually stand to listen to that many times. I know this partly because I'm a dad. We learned a little ways into the process how this stuff was being received. And I learned from firsthand experience what it's like to listen to music with your kid. We're trying to entertain the kids and not drive parents insane. And how many kids do you have, John? I just have the one, but he was born really just right before we started, maybe in the midst of us working on the first project, which was an independent record that Rounder invited us to do, and which we were not really thinking of as a big career move. We thought, oh, this will be fun. We're getting a little money and we can goof around and do something different from our usual. And the reception it got was way beyond what we expected. And so this kind of ushered in a whole period of us doing stuff for Disney and stuff that was kind of more shiny and official music for kids. Your programming changes once you have kids. Just in general, uh, suddenly I'm watching the Higley Town show and I'm like, I like this theme. Oh, wait, these guys wrote the theme to this children's show. Yeah. I felt like I had snuck you guys into my parenting land under the radar. It was just a joy to, whenever somebody crosses over, I don't know if you know the Trout Fishing in America guys, are you familiar with them? We uh, were competing for a Grammy at one point. With oh. those guys. I'm sort of remembering, because I read the Richard Brodigan novel when I was young, so that was the first thing in my head. So you're saying it is a competition. We were in that instance. <laughs> we, I think we both lost to Pete Seeger, I think, I can't remember. Okay. It's a good luck to all bands. It's a glorious world of culture out there. We love everybody. Let's go back to your beginnings with your partner, <laughs> the other John, yep. because the two of you, I want to know, you met in middle school or before that? My memory is that we met when we were both in junior high school. 
he was this kid who was a year younger than me. And he was obviously interested in doing creative stuff of just a whole variety of, in a whole variety of genres. And I was somebody he somehow knew about. He wanted to tell me about stuff he was working on. And that was kind of like our our one encounter at at that point. And then in, in high school, we both started working on the high school newspaper together. We both joined up. One of our teachers described it as Vanity Fair because we were basically just writing whatever the hell we felt like. And it it wasn't necessarily hugely popular with the school as a whole, but we thought we were pretty interesting. And our small circle of friends were into it. We wrote record reviews and stuff like that, drew comics. But isn't that what you continue to do the rest of your life? On some level. Yeah, writing the things that amused you. and Sure. There's a whimsy in the material. There's definitely a major amount of musical talent, but there's also this very interesting irony and there's deep themes and sad themes and there's interesting things that get sort of disguised as 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 a peppy tune. Absolutely. You've identified one of the things we get characterized with which is that we do melodic music that has some kind of conflict, some kind of there's some kind of torment under the surface and then the Melodies are often these bright, poppy things. We sort of think of ourselves as just doing anything. We don't We don't just stick to one formula. I think that the weird thing is that I don't think we really know what we sound like exactly. We don't, we don't really know what it is we're doing. We are just doing something that we like, and we don't know what subculture we belong to or, or you know, who, who we're specifically talking to. Um, I get, I, other than, I guess, ourselves, we, we, we want to do something that we ourselves would like. Well, I think that's the true expression of an artist though, is to have a voice that others find some comfort in or some challenge in. I guess that's the uniqueness of it. I think your voices are certainly unique. The sound of your music is has got a different quality to it than other things. And I don't think in any way there's a formula other than I think there's something often obtuse about it. When you sing of prosthetic foreheads, that's not a normal thing. I guess I would say elliptical, maybe. That's a good word. We're not saying something that's that's explicitly obvious. We're not saying something where it's 100% clear what it is, but truthfully, you know, there's nothing hidden, in other words. It's like there's no coded message. You know, it's just, if it's mysterious, that's just what it is. And that's that's how we feel about it. I think that there are all kinds of ways to do interesting art. And I think there are a lot of people who do something that's like diametrically opposite from what we're doing that I'm deeply jealous of and fascinated by. There's people who are very calculating in the way that they work within mainstream culture or or the way they're playing off of mainstream culture. And I love it when people are thoughtful about their place. I'm often kind of clueless about where we are. And I think John is a little bit more... He's paying a little more attention to the zeitgeist than I am. But we established very long ago that we didn't really want to try and chase down what other people wanted to hear. We'd been in other bands where there was maybe more of that idea of like, what what do the kids want? How How do we do the thing the kids want? And then with this thing, even when it was beginning sort of in a very unambitious way, we kind of thought, well, it can be completely freeform. We'll just make songs up and try and blow our own minds, basically. Just come, <laughs> come up with something 
crazy that sounds like it came out of nowhere. You also had a sense of performance, I think, like you were putting a show on when you were going to some of those clubs and stuff. You were aware that you were being kooky. I, yeah, I, again, I, I don't think we would have used that particular word, the K word. Right. But, I'm sorry. I, and I didn't mean to, by, to be offensive. No, no, I'm now, okay. I've turned old and I don't have, <laughs> you know, I eat cottage cheese and I use words like kooky. Understood. Yeah. It's actually probably accurate. I have to admit there probably was something deeply kooky going on. We first started performing in earnest in the East Village of New York City in the mid 1980s. And there was a lot of very free ranging, very experimental performance going on. At that time, we were, we were actually pretty normal compared to the stuff we were performing on the bill with. We were playing in these little basement rooms in the East Village where the audience was there to see some oddball performance art. So I think we kind of felt like we were often just like the, the house band in those places. That we were, we'd come on and play some songs, and then somebody else would come out with light bulbs in their eyes and, and you know, <laughs> covered in blood. Kind of the modern Dada movement there in your area. It was it was a lovely time. What was the song that you used the big stick for percussion in? We still do that. It's a song called Lie Still Little Bottle that John Flansburg wrote. And we found the best way to perform it was just the most stripped down arrangement, which was him with a very large tree limb with a microphone attached to it, bashing it against the floor and I by turns I'd play the bass saxophone or the bass clarinet or uh, occasionally the accordion against oh, that I need a better friend one pill at the bottom saying my favorite song I know I must invest it was really effective because it was so simple and we could go on TV and do that and people would kind of remember those were the guys who did that it's fun to have little identifying things that are original and that are all your own that, that people can look forward to. I can tell you from the world of standup, the hard thing is once they like a routine as a standup, you can't do it anymore because they already know the punchline. Sure, yeah, but with yeah. music, with music, it's sort of, once they love a song, it's sacrilege if you don't play it by the end of the set. Yeah. Well, luckily for us, we now have such a big back catalog that we can pull out some of those chestnuts and play them and, and we can still cram some new stuff into the show and and i think people mostly feel like oh well i got they got to play this and that and they didn't play this other one maybe next time the next uh, cram and jam yeah, that you play exactly i think for me the flood album was where i really boarded your ship i just it, it, i played it. it was a great album from the beginning to the end and it was just so cool you know the birdhouse in your soul song of course is probably one of the very early big popular songs you had, but it was in my head when I was writing other things as just that freedom of finding out who you are. And in a way you described elliptical, I would say that you are elliptical musical poets. Because you, you really play with words. We kind of sunk into this by doing trying out a lot of different things. We felt like it could sometimes be funny and that was okay. I think of hesitancy amongst loads of people exactly like us who are maybe kind of uptight about how we're perceived. There's a feeling that if you're too funny that people think you're disposable or that it's a novel, mm. novelty act. We definitely were, were subject to that worry, I think, 
early on. But then on the other hand, some people thought we were too clever for our own good. So, you know, we're either too dumb or too smart. We just had to kind of like strike the balance or find whatever the, whatever the third option was. I read something that Poet Laureate Billy Collins, I don't know if you know him, said something that one of the ridiculous aspects of being a poet is the huge gulf between how seriously we take ourselves and how generally we're ignored by everyone else. That is a very astute observation. I couldn't agree more with Mr. Collins. Yeah, John, we talk about this quite a lot, John and I, because the farther away you are from what we're doing, the more it seems like we're just goofing around and we are ridiculous people. And I'm not sure that's completely wrong, but in our heart of hearts, we we feel like we this is like a life and death thing. You know, we're <laughs> even this far into, you know, we've been doing this for 40 years and it feels each thing we do, it feels like, oh my God, the stakes are still so high. Right. I think that's the artist prisoner's dilemma. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you, this is a quote from you that I read. I was doing a little deep dive the last couple of days saying something like, we're just trying to piece people together with the music. Wow. I don't, I never, I don't remember saying that, but piece people together. That is fascinating. That doesn't sound like something I would say that might, might've come from Mr. Flansburg. Okay. Uh, well, one of the Johns, I'm going to, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't mean to lump you together. No, no, it's quite all right. I know that you're independent musicians and <laughs> you've had a long career together, but you probably feel like an ice dancing couple that you always get put out together. But you've done some individual work as well. Yeah, we've done solo projects. I think we discovered in doing that, that there's a great advantage to us working together. And we feel like it is easier to have someone else there. I certainly think that, and I'm very lucky in a way that I work with someone who's such a workaholic. I'm I'm an incredibly lazy person by comparison. And John Flansburg is easily the hardest working man in It Might Be Giants. <laughs> yeah. So I would say that we spoke the same language early on and we, in a non-hostile way, we were constantly trying to rip each other off, figure out ways to like emulate what the other guy came up with that seemed maybe seemed impossible or magical. So that's one of the things I think that's kept us going is like, oh my God, he said that. Well, I'm, I have to say something else that's equally impossible before breakfast. Right. Well, I, I think that's the great fun of collaboration is that you're always trying to play a slightly better game than your partner there. You're bringing something to the table. I always felt that when I wrote with other people, mm -hmm. if I didn't bring my work plus one to work that day, that I was going to be behind. And I think the other person did the same. And therefore, we were always just moving up the mountain a little bit faster. That's the challenge. And I suppose you can even, you can do that and you can feel like, oh my God, I have to push myself and still feel like that feeling of like, I'm a hopeless failure. Even as you're doing what you should be doing, you know, doing the exact thing that you're supposed to be doing, which is which is somehow squeezing out the best possible work. We all have a little bit of that imposter syndrome, I think, at the same time. You are a multi-instrumentalist, so I, I don't know how many, I know that you play the accordion and the saxophone. Yeah. How many instruments can you, do you feel like you can claim as languages for yourself? Well, there's categories for me. I play the keyboards. That's kind of my main thing. But then I started learning clarinet and as any clarinet player knows, you can easily transfer that skill over to other woodwinds like saxophone and 
to a lesser extent, the oboe and stuff like that, although I never never managed to get a sound out of oboe or bassoon. So once I'd sort of gotten a foothold on into woodwinds, those were kind of my two main things. And then John and I have joked about this thing of like, if you're a guitarist, then you can list all your, you know, I, well, I play the guitar. I also play the 12 string and I play the dobro. <laughs> and it's kind of like this compensation thing of like, well, I play all kinds of guitars. <laughs> I will tell you, I had a brother that played the clarinet and he was a couple of years older than me. And he was not kind to me in that he used to make me wet the reeds. Ew. He didn't like the taste of the glue. Oh my God. It was torture. And I didn't even play an instrument, but I would be licking this stuff. And that then it is, seems uh, weird in COVID days to talk about wetting someone else's read before they play, but that is uh, such bad manners. I got to say, I, I give me your brother's phone number. I want to give him a talking to, I may have to give you a list of other things. I'll write it. I'll write a strongly worded letter to him. That is beyond uh, do not wet someone else's read. Right, I think I might crochet that and put it on a pillow. <laughs> it, it sounds so good when you say it, it almost sounds like a lyric from, from a, they might be giant. So, you know, it's, yeah. it, this is what's funny. Knowing we were going to talk, I opened a Snapple soda or whatever uh, yesterday, peach iced tea, and the lid said in it, a hummingbird weighs less than a penny. And I thought, that sounds like a lyric of yours. It sounds poetic. Yeah, yeah. Partly because it's sort of like, does that mean the hummingbird is less valuable? Is that what they're, is that what they're trying to say? Hmm. I <laughs> it's something to explore. <laughs> Tell me when you and John come together, do you write separately and come together or do you often write together we try and come up with songs every which way and and that it's important to not repeat yourself so you don't want to get into this too much of a routine but if we do have any kind of routine i would say john and i each write songs in our respective home studios and then we make demos and then we bring the demos to the other guys the other musicians and try and do a, some kind of improvement over the demo with the with the live musicians but very often and this has happened a lot in the last few years john and i will swap materials so for example on this most recent album he asked me to just write some bass parts. So I sent him MIDI tracks with bass lines and I added some keyboards and stuff and he took those and there's a couple songs that he's built out of that. And for his part, he's given me a lot of drum loops. And this is a great way, It's you feel like you're really getting a big leg up because you somebody else has created this drum loop and then immediately you could you sort of like you're already got your work cut out, so to speak. That's interesting. And this is on your newest album called Book. That is correct, yes. The new album book contains collaborative songwriting by John and John, which we, you know, we've done plenty of that in the past. We've actually done often another way that we collaborate is that we've had to sort of abort a song in progress because it didn't feel like it was coming together. And I, I've given John my broken song for him to try and fix. And or I've just said, I don't really like this lyric, but the melody's good and the chorus is good. And John has like come up, he's filled in the blanks and come up with a better idea for the verse or come up with a melody for the verse or whatever. Uh, so we've done a lot of stuff like that as well. That's actually quite a fun way to take a project and interpret it and find a new life for it, especially if somebody has set it aside. If you go, this is where I can't see anything more out of this. So it probably yeah. surprises when, when the other person comes back with an angle you didn't see. Sure. It seems inevitable actually that they're going to come up with something completely different. For you, what do you think the most left field 
concept you pitched to him ever was? Or did he respond to in a way that's like, I think you've lost your mind, John. Right. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I think generally we think if the other person seems to have lost their mind, that's actually kind of promising because it's like we want to come up with something brand new. And we've often described what we're doing. The best versions of what we do are, are sort of indefensible. We dare ourselves to come up with an idea that just is wrong, you know, in some way. <laughs> it's funny. Like when we talked about the kids album earlier, I was thinking you're writing for children and you write a song called Fibber Island about fibbing. And I'm thinking, oh, this is really interesting of teaching kids what a lie is. So yeah. it's so buoyant that a parent might not even know what's going on there. The impression I got is from the kids' music that we've done is that parents are more relaxed. N not all of them, but a lot of them are more relaxed about what kind of ideas they are willing to expose their kids to than most people would give them credit for who make children's music. Most people feel like kids' music has to be educational. Uh, or remedial in some way. And I feel like that's a kind of a brutal reality for kids. Can't we just entertain them, you know, give them the same opportunity that we'd give to adults, which is like, we're not, we're not trying to instruct here. We're not, we're not even a, in a position to instruct. We don't really think you should necessarily listen to us for, you know, advice. I think in a song like, where do they make balloons? You're challenging them. That That's good for kids to wonder and to fantasize yeah. about things. Even in Istanbul, it's not Constantinople. That's education. That's a particularly weird example because that song, it's not telling you anything. It's it's more like telling you to, to just accept the like situation. Speaking as a Greek American, I find that song offensive, and yet I, <laughs> I sing it night after night. It is about how the Turks own Constantinople, and, and you should just shut up and, and accept that. <laughs> well, it's right in there. You say it in the lyrics that it only matters to the Turks, but it's still educational. It still tells us something. It stands the test of time in terms of its historic moment in change. It has it certainly has. No, I was going to say it was a surprise. We weren't like, oh, this one's the hit. <laughs> that's, as you said, that's one that people remember. When do you remember when you weren't musical, when you weren't playing an instrument? I don't have a great memory for super early childhood stuff. I, I do remember that music was a big part of my life early on. I can't really satisfy that question. I, I remember singing as a kid. I remember that adults used to sing when I was a kid. You know, that was, that was kind of normal. I, in fact, my parents had recordings uh, that they just turn on the tape recorder and they'd have friends over and everybody was singing. And it was like, wow, we, we don't do that anymore. You know, that's not really a thing. But this was in the like mid, yeah, right in the mid 1960s, I guess. And maybe it was sort of the end of a very long tradition of middle-class America. You'd get together, we'd build, everybody would be relaxed and having a nice time, and then you'd sing some songs together. But I don't know any grown-ups now who really do that ritually the way that generation seemed to. Right, unless they're in a Broadway show and it's a cast party. Ah, uh, yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> Which is then you can't yeah. stop them from singing. That's Yeah, yeah. yeah. And maybe that's partly what killed the uh, home singing was that all, <laughs> all those all those Broadway babies. So what were those early influences? Well, so I was living in New York in the early 60s when, and this is a very stock answer, but I happened to be here in New York 
when the Beatles arrived. And I was, I think, four years old, but my older brother and sister were so excited about it that uh, I was made aware and that we had a WMCA playing and they were playing I Want to Hold Your Hand. And it really felt like this exciting moment that we kind of felt like was, even though I was, uh, even though I was a new person at the time, it felt like something new had entered the culture. Somehow we were aware that this was, was a new thing. So that was one of, definitely one of the big things early on was just awareness of the excitement around the British invasion and, and the AM radio in general was just full of crazy, exciting, and very diverse uh, cultural explosions. The other thing in our house was that my mom had this record called Songs of the Pogo. And so there were things like that that were kind of unclassifiable. It was a, it was a song book by Walt Kelly that had been turned into an album. It was a really crazy record and not necessarily for kids, although it's sort of seemed like, yeah, it's, I mean, the Pogo cartoon was not really aimed at kids, but it was kid friendly. So that was something that caught my attention. And then I, and the other thing that's really an oddball thing that I remember was my dad had a uh, Edgar Varez record, which contained his extremely left field avant-garde compositions for percussion orchestras and also for electronic. He wrote electronic music as well. Me and my siblings would actually dance around to this thing, which is pretty hilarious because it was not written for that purpose. But, you know, we thought we thought this record was fun and hilarious. So Ed, Edgar Varez, Songs of the Pogo and the Beatles, I would say, were the were the tripod <laughs> upon which uh, your foundation was built. That's right. Yes. It's funny. I had no musical sense. My, my parents had a stereo with some albums in it, but it was sort of the classic at that time. They would have some couple of Hawaiian albums. Like, you know, they had gone to Hawaii once and they had that. And my dad had clustered in the back was a whipped cream album. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody, everybody's dad had that one. The first time that I even had a sense of any kind of music because I didn't have my own records or anything was a, ki a kid traded me, wanted some Hot Wheels that I had. I might have been eight or nine or 10 or something. He wanted this Red Baron Hot Wheels so badly that he traded me for a 45 of a Ventures uh, record that was Wipeout, which was the great drum solo yeah. of all time. And so he, he gave it to me and he, I think he thought he got away with something and I felt super excited and yet I had nothing to play it on. Like I would just look at this record <laughs> going one day I'll play this record. <laughs> so it was, but it was fun to have a record cause I just wasn't from a family of collecting records. And so that made me naive until I was almost at junior high. And I had a friend, when you mentioned the Beatles, it made me remember my friend, Mike, who had a Beatles t-shirt on and the four Beatles were on it. I think I'd heard some of the music and I saw this picture and I assumed all four of these guys were dead. I was just like, what's ah. the deal with, you know what I mean? And he gave me an education. He knew everything there ever was to know about the Beatles, which sucked me in and brought me right into the music. But that's awesome. Yeah. That's it's great. funny that's to good. sort of feel like you were sequestered from, there was some kind of governor on the amount of music that came into your house. Well, and, and how, and yeah, and how you were appreciating it was like, you didn't necessarily as a kid understand everything. My brother brought home the the Who Sings My Generation. And the thing that puzzled me was, I mean, I'm not saying I was like this super literate person, but it was called The Who Sings My Generation. So <laughs> I thought The Who must be an individual. And then hearing the record, 
it, there were these these British like white skinny British guys on the cover, but I was like, clearly whoever the who is, <laughs> he's a black man because that's obviously who's singing on the record. You know, it was like Roger Daltrey is doing this like credible impression of a southern black American, and as far as I was concerned, that's who the who was. And these guys were just the backing band. And he was called The Who because he didn't show up on the cover. That's funny. And I love those misinterpreted when Neil Diamond or something, Forever in Blue Jeans. I thought that song was Reverend Blue Jeans. I sure. thought, oh, it's a it's about some priest. Absolutely. You know, he's so cool that he wears jeans to church. And yes. uh, nobody was around to tell me otherwise until... Yeah. I had been singing it that way for years. And then and it's, it's kind of disappointing when you, when you're disabused <laughs> of those notions, a friend of mine thought that the song soul man was actually, I was so mad. <laughs> Which I thought is that's so much better. Like I almost wish that song existed. That's, that's fantastic. And and the thing is, you get into it so much when you're singing it in your car alone, especially if you like the song, that you know, by the time people are mocking you for having it wrong, you're 100 percent convicted. That you're already on board. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So tell me about the accordion because this is the weirdest instrument I can think of. You know, maybe that or the bagpipes. Where was that something you picked up as you were older, or did you learn it as a kid? Because I don't even this. You're, you've got some bellows, so that's yeah. some fireplace equipment with some buttons on it and whatever, but yeah. that seems like a cumbersome thing to take up. It's a little cumbersome. Yeah. I think it is, it is a cumbersome instrument. There's something strangely appealing about it. it's, it's sort of contraptionness. I think that was maybe what attracted me to it was that it was just this odd, ungainly thing. And I didn't know anybody who played the accordion growing up. I, I didn't play one or, or even was, I, I never touched one until I was, uh, already starting off with this project with John Flansburg. And we, what we wanted to do was have a kind of portable version of our performance that we could do. So we could play, for example, on the Brooklyn Promenade, just with an amplifier, you know, just singing into the air. And so I went down to uh, 48th Street in Manhattan. And uh, at that time, one of the guitar shops had a huge shelf of accordions that were obviously <laughs> not at all popular with anybody and in fact were completely covered in dust so I, I i um you know i pointed to one and the guy got out a special brush to to like get all the crud off it uh, so he could show it to me um and you went uh, to the you went to the accordion orphanage there that it yeah. was just it was just couldn't believe it was being picked yeah exactly yeah they were like puppies and, uh, you know, I looked at, I mean, it's partly like based on the way it looked, but I like tried out a few of them and there, there was one super creaky old one from the twenties that I liked a lot. So that was my first accordion. I was probably 21 at that point. And John and I had already started doing this thing of writing songs and I'd pl been playing electric organ up until then. But, um, yeah. And, you know, I, I feel like I, I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not a real accordionist. Like a lot of people I know who are just, amazingly facile on it. I basically applied my piano playing skills to the right hand and then eventually figured out how to address the buttons on the left hand, which are inscrutably uniform. You know, it's just this ro rows and columns of buttons. And it turns out there is a very logical system to them, but it's so, not... So many buttons there. There's so a lot of buttons. Me, give us a little bit of uh, 
a hint of what that system is. Okay. Well, the, the easiest way to put it, um, for especially if you have any background in music, is that any song that has only three chords in it, they're usually a particular set of chords in a given key that have this very close harmonic relationship to each other. And that that's about as technical as I want to get. But those three, the buttons that represent those three chords will always be right next to each other. So it's a very good instrument in that sense that the chords are near each other that should be near each other on the amongst the buttons. And for the slightly more trained musician, I would say they're arranged in a, what's called a circle of fifths. So if you know what that is, it's a straight pattern of fifths all the way up and down the buttons. And that makes it very easy because you can play a song in a different key just by moving your hand to a different place and just do the same pattern in a different place. And you're now you're playing the same song in a different key. So, you know, it's actually pretty logical and it's not crazy. Well, it, it's a super fun instrument to listen to, but I, but it looks like you're playing a piece of furniture and you've got keyboard on one side and a, skyscraper elevator button pad on the other side yeah and then you have to coordinate right playing that you normally do with this pushing pushing and pulling motion which you have to do in a coordinated way because it doesn't make any sound if you're not pushing it so if you it's sort of like breathing if you run out of air in one direction you have you're gonna have to stop and change direction and the music stops at that moment so you have to pick those moments very carefully so the pushing and pulling are both a product of getting air into the bellows i'm ready to do my uh, youtube tutorial now i think now, <laughs> now now that i'm getting into it yeah i think i could probably uh according for idiots i guess well it's a fairly old school instrument and as you said most of them are sitting on shelves yes yes although at some point in the this was the early 1980s when i bought my accordion and then a little further into the 80s i think it started to pick up steam and it had reached a sort of nadir of popularity Sometime around then, it was the, the squarest possible instrument around 1980. And then, as I recall, Bruce Springsteen and the Hooters and a bunch of other bands started incorporating accordion, and it, it, it sort of crawled back from its incredibly uncool status a little bit. And, and but then I, I think still sort of retained a certain like haha joke instrument thing for for people who were not deeply interested in getting any further into it. Well, it lives above the bagpipes and below the ukulele and the ukulele has burst onto the scene in the greatest way. There's so Absolutely. many super cool things. So maybe you're the ambassador of the rise of the accordion coming with your YouTube channel. That ship may have already sailed actually, <laughs> but like I said, I felt like this was happening 35 years ago that the accordion was sort of having a bit of a resurgence. And I think if it didn't really happen, then maybe it's, maybe the accordion is where about where it lives now. I know, I know young people who are interested. I mean, I have, there's friends of my son who that's the instrument that they chose, you know, and it wasn't because of me. It's funny how a person chooses an instrument. At least at, when, when my kids were going to school, the school had a somewhere at the fifth, sixth grade level, they, you could either be an orchestra band or choir. And you had to go one day to school and try out instruments and figure it out. And these kids didn't know anything. So they got to pick three things and everybody wanted to play the drums. So they didn't let anybody play the drums who hadn't learned piano or couldn't read music. They just didn't want to put up with that, I guess. But the funny thing was my oldest son came away and they had 
put him on the French horn. And they said, oh, he's his lips are perfect for the French horn. And I was thinking, this is a crock. They have no French <laughs> horn players. Like, Sure. Yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. And they go, no, it's, it's his lips are. And I was like, all right. Well, he turned out to be quite a good French horn player. That's great. Well, I think in all seriousness, I think French horn is hard even amongst brass, brass instruments, that it's probably the hardest one of those to play. They probably were onto something that he, if he could get a good sound out of it, then he's he's a valuable person. It's interesting, though, to be told that you have a face for the French horn. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Does your child play an instrument? He does, yes. He's in, and this is kind of nice for me. He plays the guitar, which I don't, I'm not a good guitarist. So he, his main instrument is the guitar. He plays other stuff. He plays keyboards, and he's got an assemblage of other stuff up in his room. Is he ready to start a band, or has he already got that going on? He's performed a few times, actually. Um, yeah, he's he's okay. He's seems He looks very uh, confident on stage, which uh, he reports that he's dying inside of nervousness. <laughs> he's pulling it off, as far as I can tell. In bands, if you've got a good bass face or you've got something that people are intrigued by, then you just got to get your skills up to the to the level that you can live with yeah. that same confidence. You were in an early band, uh, The Mundanes. Was that on your own or were you and John both in that together? That was just me. And I was a kind of a minor figure um, in The Mundanes. I was just, when I was a teenager, I played in a band in high school that sort of entertained the idea like, well, it's, it's good to join a band because... For some reason, I thought one of the things you need in life is to play in a band, but I was not ready to have my own band yet. I mainly, probably for the same reason now that I just had a laziness. I don't want to have to do all the work. You know, you're still doing the work, right? I'm doing some of the work. I don't do the, a lot of the heavy lifting, which involves figuring out, for example, how we're going to package ourselves. And you know, what's really an amazingly lucky thing for me is that my partner, John Flansburg, went to art school and he studied design and he worked as a, a page uh, layout guy uh, as a freelance uh, magazine layout guy and so he's very very visually oriented and he has some strong ideas about and and I should say our, our new project uh, which is this album book is a book and that is that is, I have to credit John Flansburg it's 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 really his brainchild uh, as far as the package is concerned um, it's a beautiful 12-inch by 12-inch hardcover book with amazing art photography and creative typography, and uh, and it includes a They Might Be Giants album. It's book, the album, the book. Exactly. That's well put, yes. It's not like ABBA the movie, which was in fact a movie, or ABBA the album, which was an album. It's actually TMEG's The Book, which is an album in a book we talked to a musician named bd wolf who was really into the tangible art of delivering her content and she was young when her when looking at liner notes at her parents albums but that was the magic for her and when everything went digital and things were being distributed just on itunes she kind of lamented the idea that she was going to make an album and it was never going to be anything yeah so, i think that's i think we're, we're probably partly because our age you know we just remember that experience of buying even buying an album based on the album cover was was a you know part of the experience and then you get it home and hold the thing in your hands while you listen to the music and it's a shame that we don't get to have that experience for the most part i know i know there's a big underground vinyl culture going on now this has turned out to be a popular thing this uh, book 
project that we've done that people, a lot more people than uh, we necessarily anticipated want to own an object like this. They don't want to just listen on their headphones to our music. There's still a strong appeal for that stuff. Well, it's a tribute to the kind of work that you and John do, which is that you are storytellers at the core. And these are chapters. Each song is a part of a book. And this now offers a, the visual branding the, that he, he has for, for you as a group. So that kind of just expands the story, I think. That is an interesting take. And, and you're, I think you're the first person who's made that particular association that it's a, to do with storytelling. It didn't occur to me. And I have to now I have to ask John whether that entered his head. It's a good peg. I'm gonna, we're going to use that now. So yes, run we with are, it. We're storytellers. This this book is our story. I think it is. I really, especially as we grow older, we don't always realize that we're building on a legacy we want to leave behind, and that does come in the form of telling our stories. That's great. That's great. Thank you for that. But what happens to you sometimes, lyrically or observationally, that makes you go, "I got, I got to sit down and write this right now." I think that the rare and extremely uh, you know, serendipitous experience of coming up with the idea, that's the most ideal situation. And in fact, for the most part, a lot of what I do, and I think John has a similar work process, is I sit and write music. I sit and write chords and melodies, and, and then I try and get that to suggest some kind of lyrical idea. And sometimes it's an incredibly slow and grueling process. And I have to say, like, for the most part, and I think a lot of people, even a lot of creative people probably share this feeling, that I don't like working that much, but I really, really like having done the work. I really I really feel very, very good about it when it's finished. And that compensates for the, you know, the torture of having to do it. Yeah, I think Dorothy Parker said, I don't like writing, but I like having written. And there is just something yeah. fantastic about the accomplishment and it all coming together and having a final form where you can walk away from it and it can live on its own. Yes. I'm, and, I'm sorry to hear that Dorothy Parker came up with that before I did because I, I was feeling pretty proud of myself. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, we can live in a fantasy land here. <laughs> I can just give her a minor, you know, side credit. We, we, we came up with it independently. Let's, let's yes. just say that. Yeah, there you go. What what else in your life uh, is is art or cooking or something? What else occupies your creative mind? Oh well, I have a lot of really ridiculous hobbies, and and I have to say, like, I am very committed to this idea of being an amateur in in all sorts of ways, in the sense of like, do something that you really enjoy, even though you suck at it. It's a long list of things, but yeah, I like taking pictures. I have a little dark room down here and I'm, I'm in the basement right now. This is where, this is where I do most of my work. And just down there is a bathroom that's can be easily converted into a dark room. So, uh, I do that, but I don't ever exhibit the photos cause it's just kind of for me. And I feel like I don't know. I don't know whether any of the pictures would hold up to scrutiny. <laughs> what else do you suck at? I suck at, I'm looking around the room here. Um, <laughs> I have a telescope and I, I like to look at the stars, but it's not very fancy and I don't even know why I do it. And I'm not, I've never discovered anything in the sky. I'm just like basically looking in the book and saying, oh, you can see Saturn in this part of the sky. And then I, and then you set up the telescope and sure enough, there it is. 
and that's that's fun. But maybe maybe one day you'll discover the Linnell universe or something, and we'll all be talking about it. I'm not really trying to do that, though. I'm not. I'm not aspiring to do anything of the sort. I'm just. I'm just doing this kind of. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's a little on the spectrum or something. I just. I just like to do this entirely pointless act. But don't some of those activities, when you do that, it clears your mind or it opens up other things where your your subconscious is working. I agree with that. Not specifically in the service of anything useful like doing creative work, but just as a kind of meditative thing that is has no other remedial purpose. It's just fun and interesting. I don't know why, but I think about outer space sometimes, and that's interesting. I don't know why. And the same thing with photography. I, I like the process. I like this idea that you go through these series of steps and you get a result at the end. And also, you know, I like old cameras. I have a bunch of these. I could show you, but the folks at home won't be seeing this. Well, you can um, describe a little. I can see the shelf there, so I can see a, yeah. a few different. They're mostly, there's, there's some plastic cameras from the 1950s that were very inexpensive. And then there's a couple of Russian ones that are sort of mid-priced imitation Leicas. That's a very popular thing amongst camera collectors are these 1950s and 60s Russian cameras that uh, you can attach a much nicer lens onto onto the Russian camera body. So I have those, and I have a nice Canon from the 70s that's actually really a much more like a real camera, and it does everything except for autofocus. That's like, you know, that's that's a little too high tech. The rest of it is is pretty fancy. And then you're, you're a real photographer. Autofocus, that's like a car that drives itself. You're yeah, going to yeah. end up in the ditch somewhere. Probably. Are you familiar with the human library? Have you heard about this? Uh, I don't know what that is, no. Well, I'm going to share it with you because I just, I just read about it not too long ago. And it was in Copenhagen in 2000. In Denmark, they created a human library where you could check out another person. So somebody, it's meant to be a non-judging thing where you go talk to somebody of a different religion or somebody of a different sexuality. It's really a fascinating idea where people volunteer to be the books where they can be checked out, or you can say, I need to learn more about somebody else. You can find out about it at the humanlibrary.org. Fascinating. That's, that's where I read it. I'm saying that because I feel like I got to meet with a giant today. You have been my book to check out, and we're going to be checking out your book. That will be an album. That will be <laughs> a book. Beautiful segue. This is a dismount. I want to stick it. <laughs> anyway, John, I think you're amazing, and congratulations to you and John. We'll be looking for the album. If we do tour next year, which seems very likely, we will probably be uh, at Stubbs or somewhere else in Austin. Really looking forward to that. Thank you for taking a break from your music and your photography to spend time with me. <laughs> This is a joy. Thank you, John. Thank you, Pat. Great talking to you. The dream that I had last night But I woke with delight and excitement And then when I tried to remember The dream that I had last night It was gone, but the feeling I had In the dream stayed on When I'm awake and I look around me I can faithfully report Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under the skilled producership of Amanda Rosenberg with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. 
with additional production support and sanity provided by Casey Franco, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just too dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call to create.